Welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor. We are in this series that we are calling Seemingly Impossible. Hold up for these guys. So before I begin, I just want to just say publicly, I know Adam Duckworth uh, was uh, speaking last week, our volunteer coordinator. He's watching online Facebook Live right now. Hey, Adam, just want to thank you. He did a great job. Um, it gave me and my wife a chance to get away. We celebrated our wedding anniversary, so that was great. We were up in New Jersey, which is not, thank you, you can clap if you want. Um, not generally a vacation destination. Our family's up there, but it was nice to get away. We were down by the Jersey Shore. And I'll be honest with you, it's really hard for me to get away from work, especially when you can watch church online. So I was home last Sunday watching the service along with you guys here. And I got to say, it's a little lively in here last week. <laughs> I don't know if you were here, but I was watching online. I go to my wife. I go, thank God I'm not there. <laughs> like, Adam did a great job. I would have responded probably a little bit differently. If you were distracted by all that, that was not a skit. That was real life. Okay, we're not judging. Okay, we've learned not to do that. That will not happen again. We do apologize for the inconvenience. Anyway, back to this series. So we are in this series called Seemingly Impossible. And if it is your first time here, let me explain to you the origins of this series. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he brought his disciples together and he goes, all right, guys, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go out into the world and you need you to make disciples of every single nation, baptize them like we're going to do next Saturday, and then I need you to teach them my commands. And so that raises the question, all right, well, what are those commands? Because we know the Ten Commandments, we've heard of that. We know Jesus talks about this idea of love your neighbors yourself, but what are like some of the specific commands that he gives? We might know, not know them off the top of our head. But if you look through the Gospels and you kind of search through your notes, so to speak, a pattern does begin to emerge. In fact, Jesus has given us commands that he repeats over and over and over and over again. And, and these commands are, are short, they're succinct, they're very easy to remember, but they are seemingly impossible for us to do. And the way that we've been rolling these out to you is we've kind of treating the audience as though you guys are first century Christians. As though the disciples converted you guys, baptized you guys, now they have you in a classroom and they are doing what Jesus asked them to do, to teach them, teach you his commands. And week one, if you remember, I kind of said, get a piece of paper out, right at the top of the sheet, thou shalt not, because every good command has to be written this way. We know this, okay? And week one, the very first one, Jesus' favorite one, was thou shalt not fear. And what we learned is that Jesus told every single one of us that you don't need to be afraid even when there's something to be afraid of. Because growing up, your parents may have said to you, you don't need to be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. Jesus goes, that's great. But you don't need to be afraid even when there is something to be afraid of. I'm with you. I'm watching out for you. I am caring for you. Last week, Adam did a masterful job talking to us about thou shalt not judge. And this is a difficult one because this is one that just is instinctual for us. It's ingrained in sort of our personality. We've, you know, we use judgment to sort of make sure we're in a safe situation, but we've turned that now on other people. And Adam last week challenged us to sort of not size someone up and just write them off. Get to know them. Get to learn about them. Love them. And then maybe at some point you might pour into their life about some issue, but at that point you have earned the respect to do that. But today we're going to be talking about a command that I believe is the greatest one that Jesus gave during this series. It is certainly going to be the most difficult for us, I think, for us to sort of begin to understand. But 
if we can grasp this, and if we can begin to work towards what Jesus is calling us to do, I believe it can absolutely change our life. It can change our community, that's for sure. So today, we are learning, thou shalt not sin. And you hear this one, you're like, wait, wait, wait. What's that one? Yeah, thou shalt not sin. Is that even possible? You kind of ask because you're like, well, fear, okay, that's a choice. I can make a choice and not be afraid. Judge not, fine, understand that. Even though that person from high school shouldn't be putting that bathing suit picture up on Facebook, but I'm not going to, I'm going to pretend like I didn't see it. Okay, I can judge not, but, but, but sin not? I mean, who am I, Jesus? This just doesn't seem possible. So this command that Jesus gives us is found in what amounts to being one of the most popular, one of the most famous stories in the entire New Testament. And I guarantee that probably a lot of you have actually heard this story before. If you've been at DHC any length of time, we've talked about this one. We've taught a little bit on it before. But when you see what I'm going to roll out to you and you know this story, do me a favor. Don't jump ahead because you're going to hear it and you're going to go, oh, I know what the command is. Don't do that. Just work through it with me because I want to look at it from a slightly different angle. I want to spend some time talking about the setting of the story. Because if you can begin to understand where this story takes place, then the entire lesson has much more gravitas. There's a lot more going on when you understand where this real account took place. So let me show you a picture of where this story took place. This is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. This is a modern-day picture of the Temple Mount that's currently in Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus was alive, it looked much bigger, okay? This is a 35-acre piece of property. It's huge, okay? The temple that existed when Jesus was alive has now been destroyed, okay? It got destroyed in the first century, and Muslims have now taken over it, and they built the Dome of the Rock in the middle. But during this story, during the Bible, during the New Testament, in the middle of this property, right around like here, is what is known as the Holy of holies, okay? They didn't have superlatives back then. They couldn't call it the holiest place, so they called it the holy of holies. And in this small building, in the middle of this 35-acre piece of property, in the middle of the temple, in the holy of holies resided God's actual presence. He was in that room, and there were artifacts in there, well, in there as well, but that is where God resided. Now, Around the Holy of Holies, sort of where you see these trees now, is what is known as the Court of Gentiles. And this is where the story takes place today. Now, you're going to see this wall here. That's the Western Wall. We know it as the Wailing Wall. Often you'll see presidents kind of going there and praying alongside of it. Um, That's where Jewish people today, right now, go and pray along. But I want to point out to you something along the Southern Wall that's right around here. So zoom in, if you would, for them. Okay. This is on the Southern Wall. These are what's known as the southern steps or the southern stairs. They're about 250 feet wide. At the very top of the steps are three gates called the triple gate. And they're now blocked off. But these stairs are very important. These stairs for the Jews at that time could be considered like the stairway to heaven, so to speak. The stairway to atonement, the stairway to reconciliation. Because multiple times per year, every single year, Jewish people would come to the temple with their sacrifice, with their offering. They would walk up these stairs. They would walk through these gates. 
They would enter the court of Gentiles. They would go to the altar. They would lay down their sacrifice. They would lay down their offering. They would leave their sin at the altar. They'd walk back out these gates. They'd walk back down these stairs, free of sin, free of guilt, with their relationship with God restored. Now, why do I spend so much time talking about this? Because you need to understand that when we're talking about the Jewish temple, it's not just the church. It is the epicenter of God's activity on earth at that time. And it was the most important geographical location for every single Jewish person in the world. And it's where our story takes place today. So today we're going to find ourselves in John chapter 8. And it says this. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. So early in the morning lets us know that the sun probably has not even risen yet. It's probably most likely still dark. And Jesus walked up those southern steps, through those gates, and now he's in that large court of Gentiles. All the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Because wherever Jesus went, people surrounded him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. The scribes and the Pharisees, that is the Jewish religious leaders at that time, brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court of Gentiles, they said to him, now, before we kind of continue, one of the clues that we get that something unusual is going on here is that we know it's like 7 a.m. It could be like 6 in the morning, it's dark, it's early, and we know that these guys have now brought this woman who they caught red-handed in adultery, they're bringing him to Jesus. And, and we ask, well, where was she all night? What have these guys been doing with this woman all night long that all of a sudden they're showing up at like six in the morning with her? I'll tell you where she was. They kept her on ice. They saved her up because they were going to use her as bait to trap Jesus. And they know that he keeps going to the temple. It says going again. And they were going to use this poor woman to catch Jesus. There was nothing about restoration. They had, they had no care for her marriage or, or the other guy's marriage. This was all about trapping Jesus. And they grabbed this woman, and they dragged her up those southern stairs, dragging her past her fellow Jews who were going there to get forgiveness of sins, dragged her through the triple gates into the court of Gentiles, and threw her at the feet of Jesus. Teacher, they said, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act as in, thou shalt not commit adultery, okay? This woman didn't break one of the 16, uh, 613 peripheral laws. She broke one of the top 10. She broke one of the top 10, the 10 commandments, one of the ones that we remember, right? Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery. We know there's like seven more, but we have to look those up. This is the one you remember. She broke one of the top three of one of the top 10. And now the crowd is growing because people want to see this spectacle that's unfolding. It's the kind of thing where like they got their cell phones out because this is going to be a big deal. We want to get this on camera because you're not going to believe what I saw at the temple today. Now imagine this woman for a second. She's been to this temple before. She, she, but every single time that she walked up those stairs in the past, she was carrying a sacrifice for her sins. Now she's the sacrifice. And, and as she sits there on the ground, shaking, crying, tears pouring down her face as she sees the holy of holy in the back, the magnitude of her sin, 
the magnitude of the situation begins to set in for this woman. Scribes and the Pharisees say, now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say, Jesus? Okay, now, let me just talk about this for a second. They are correct in what they're saying, but they're leaving something out. Because the actual law of Moses says this. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. So where's the man? Right? They, they caught her in the very act. Where's the guy? They just let him go. Because this whole thing that they're doing here is just a charade, okay? It's just a charade. It's all about getting Jesus. And John, the author of this gospel, points it out. He says, they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. So these guys, these spiritual leaders of the time, they dropped the law, they dropped Moses right on Jesus, okay? It's go time. This is a big deal, okay? When they say this, the crowd, there's a hush. There's like gasps that these guys just said this to Jesus. It's the kind of scene like in Christmas Story when Schwartz triple dog dared Flick to lick the pole and everybody's like, oh my gosh, no, he didn't. That's this. People can't believe what these guys just did to Jesus. Now, this isn't the first time that the scribes and the Pharisees have tried to uh, trap Jesus. They do it all the time. But it never works because their attempts are always really lame. Jesus just says, come on, try a little harder. This time they tried hard. This trap is brilliant. What they've set up for Jesus is absolutely brilliant. In fact, the man who came up with this trap should get a raise. Let me explain to you what they've done to Jesus here. Here's the trap. The first part is the law of Moses, okay? Now, they know Jesus. If Jesus all of a sudden is a rabbi, okay, and we know he loves mercy, we know he loves love, if he all of a sudden he goes, "Mm, you know what, I know she committed adultery, but let's just let it go. Let's, we don't, I know we're supposed to stone her, but let's not, let's not do that. Let's, let's love our neighbors ourselves and not stone her. If he said that, they would go, whoa, 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 whoa. You call yourself a teacher of the law, you call yourself a rabbi, and yet you are going against what the law of Moses says in the very temple of God? He would lose his entire audience. Everybody would leave him if he did that. But if Jesus somehow surprised them and goes, you know what? When you're right, you're right. When you're right, you're right. Get me a stone. We've got to kill this woman. If he said that, boom, then they nail him with the law of Rome. Because at this time, you have to remember that Jerusalem is under Roman occupation. And Rome has the sole authority for capital punishment. Only they can execute someone. So if Jesus all of a sudden is calling for execution, calling for the stoning of a woman, they just whistle down a Roman guard He's arrested, done. It's brilliant. It is a real catch-22 for Jesus. And in this moment, this is Jesus versus Moses, Jesus versus the temple, their Bible, and Rome. And we can only do so much to imagine the tension that is in this situation, but it is red hot. And it's the kind of situation that, you know, we know the disciples from week one, very fearful people. 
This is the kind of situation where they start doing one of these, like they're backing away from the scene. They're going to John. They go, John, you're writing all this down because there's like a thing we got to go do. You send me the notes afterwards. Okay, thanks, bye. Not their scene. So how does Jesus respond? What does he do with a trap like this? Calmly, it says, Jesus got down and began to write in the dust on his finger. Doesn't say a word. He just kneels on the ground and begins to draw. Now, there are certain passages in Scripture that draw tremendous attention. This right here, verse 6, is one of them. For hundreds and now thousands of years, Christians and theologians alike have debated and wondered, what What did Jesus write? Because all the manuscripts that we have, it doesn't say it. It just says this. It talks about that he drew it. We don't know. And there's all kinds of theories. And some of them are very interesting. But nobody knew for certain until now. About 90 days ago. About four months ago. About archaeologists out of the University of Egypt in Cairo uncovered a first century Coptic Christian. That means Egyptian Christian. Coptic Christian manuscript. A fragment. And it included John 8, 6. And when they put this under the electron microscope, it revealed the actual image that Jesus drew 2,000 years ago. This. No, I'm kidding. It's not really true. You guys just keep like, <laughs> it's what we all drew in fourth grade. Somehow everybody in fourth grade, you're like, this is amazing. Wow, what a, what a revelation for Christendom. No, okay, this is not what he, if you don't know what this is, you're a little on the older side, okay? Your kids know what this is, they all draw it somehow. Okay, but here's the deal. We don't know what he drew, but theologians believe that what he was doing was trying to remind us in our mind that God himself, with his own finger, wrote the Ten Commandments. And now Jesus is down there in the ground responding to these men, drawing something. And the longer he writes... And the more silent he stays, the more agitated these guys get. We read, it says this, and when they persisted in asking him, understand, this is basically a fight, okay? These men have venom coursing through their system. They are angry, and they fire off this question to Jesus, and he quietly says nothing. He just gets on one knee. Imagine that, God himself kneeling before man taking a posture of humility when he could have just decimated these guys. And he just writes. And as he writes, it says they persisted. They goaded him. Speak up. Answer for yourself. You think you're a big shot? Let's see you answer this one now. And the longer he stayed silent, the more confident they became that they had him. And then he spoke. He straightened up. And said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. It is an absolute microphone drop moment. And as these guys, their heads are just spinning with what Jesus just said in front of the entire crowd, basically he's like, guys, 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 guys. Before you go a step further, before you say another word, before you move a muscle to pick up a rock, let's not forget 
where we are right now, right? We're in the temple. Let's not forget why we're all here. Let's not forget how many times you and you and you walked up those southern steps and through that triple gate holding a sacrifice for your sins. And as these words just echoed in their heads, it reminded them how many times they've done that. How many times their parents walked up those steps. How many times their grandparents walked up those steps. And everything came flooding in. All of their personal failures, all of their sins, and all of a sudden they realized this was a colossal error on their part to confront Jesus on this issue in this location. The ironic part is that there was someone with them who was without sin, and yet he was the only one not holding a stone. When they heard it, when they heard what Jesus said, they began to go out one by one. Previously, if you didn't know what the temple looked like, you just breeze right past this. But now you can see it in your mind. They walked out of the court of Gentiles. They walked underneath the triple gate. They walked down the southern steps, passing their fellow Jews the other way who were going for forgiveness of their sins. And they walked out into the city in the opposite direction of the very presence and activity of God on this earth. Scripture says they left in a specific order, beginning with the older ones, meaning those religious leaders who had gone to the temple for the forgiveness of sins more than anybody else, they left first. And he, meaning Jesus, was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. This poor woman, this adulterous woman, left by herself with the Son of God, the Lamb of God, in the temple of God. And she had no idea. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Right? Where'd they all go? What, what just happened here? And he asked a really interesting question. Did no one condemn you? See, he didn't ask, did no one accuse you? Because they did. And he didn't ask, are you guilty? Because she was. She had literally been caught red-handed. When he asked the question, did no one condemn you, what he's asking, is there no one forcing you to pay for what you've done? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, now, are you ready for what he said? Because for some of you, this is why you came today. Some of you had such a wild night last night that you came right to church because you got to counteract what you did. Maybe you didn't go to bed. You said, I got to go right there and make things right with God, okay? We've been there. We've all been there. We're all waiting to see if Jesus would say the words that he's about to say. And when we finally heard the words, we're not sure we still believe it. But Jesus looked into the eyes of this adulterous woman and said, I do not condemn you either. I'm not going to make you pay for what you've done. And by saying this, he's announcing to that woman, the crowd, and anybody who would read this story, that Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than the law, greater than the temple. And then he gave her the seemingly impossible command. Go, sin no more. Imagine this scene for a moment. Imagine you're this woman 
Her accusers didn't condemn her. Jesus didn't condemn her. She literally escaped the death penalty. I imagine she, she begins to kiss Jesus' feet, right? Stands up, wipes, you know, the tears from her eyes, fixes her hair. And as it begins to dawn on her what Jesus just said, go and sin no more, she goes, wait, 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 wait. Did you just say don't sin anymore? And he goes, yeah, that's what I said. Is that even possible? And she finds herself where we were in the very beginning. Fear not, not a problem. Judge not, judge not I can do that. But sin not, is that even possible? It, it doesn't add up, particularly for those of us Christians now who have had access to the Bible. We read in the New Testament time and time again, talks about the fact that when you're a Christian, you're still going to sin. John himself, John himself writes these words. If we claim that we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So if Jesus says don't sin, and John says you do sin, and we know that the scriptures don't contradict each other, what's going on here? How do we understand this, right? What does it mean when Jesus says don't sin? Here's how to understand this. Jesus doesn't expect sinless perfection, okay? Jesus knows that sinless perfection for a human being this side of heaven is an impossibility. Not going to happen. We live in a fallen world. We have a fallen body. We have a fallen mind. It is just not going to happen. No, he does not expect Christians to live in sinless perfection, but he does expect something. Jesus does expect us to leave our life of sin. Unfortunately, Many Christians ignore this. Many Christians live a life that I kind of call rinse and repeat Christianity, right? We've said yes to Jesus, and then we just do whatever we want, right? We mess up, we sin, Jesus loves me, he'll forgive. Jesus loves me, he'll forgive. Jesus loves me, he'll forgive. Rinse and repeat. And yeah, Jesus does love you. And yes, Jesus will always forgive you, but this is not the way that Jesus called you to live your life. When you're a Christian, and this is what Jesus is driving at, and this is the crux of the story, and this is what the New Testament as a whole drives to, when you say yes to Jesus, from that moment forward, you are to be actively improving yourself. You are to be actively moving away from the old you, actively moving away from your life of sin. So, why does Jesus say, leave your life of sin? I think the logical answer you would say is, well, so God doesn't punish us. But if you're a Christian, Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for your sin, so it has to be another reason. The reason Jesus said, leave your life of sin, is because he knows something about sin. He knows that sin kills things. And so do you. Because how many times have you seen sin kill a marriage? Or you've seen sin kill finances. Or you've seen sin tear families apart. Or sin destroy self-esteem. Or tear cultures thread from a thread. That's why we see what we see in the news these days with the shooting. This is sin. And Jesus never wanted this for our lives. That's why he said sin not. 
Twice it's a nut. Because he doesn't want his children, those that he died on the cross for, to be negatively impacted by the consequences of their sinful actions. But we hear sin not, and we think, I cannot sin not. Just can't do it. John, I'm hearing what you're saying, okay? I've tried to stop, but I can't. I've tried to beat it, but I can't, okay? That's true. You can't. If you could have, you would have. But God and Jesus never expected you to beat your sin on your own. That's why God sent the Holy Spirit. He called it a helper to help you beat these things. Let me show you a section in Scripture where Paul teaches about this very issue. He says this. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Submit to the Holy Spirit that's inside of each and every single Christian. And when you do, you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. Continues. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, results are clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, whatever that is, okay? Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. That's if you're in control. But if you give your life over to Holy Spirit, Paul says this. That the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love. Enjoy peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there's no law against these. The law of Moses doesn't prohibit these. You can do these as much as you want. And then he wraps this whole section up by saying something incredible. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who have said yes to Jesus, have nailed the passions and the desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. When Jesus died on that cross, he didn't die just to forgive you of your sins. He died to set you free from them. He died to empower you to leave the life of sin, to sin no more, to sin not, to walk away from the old you. And because of Jesus, because of what he did on that cross, we are no longer slaves to sin. That's what Paul says. Sin's no longer your master. You no longer have to do the things that you know you shouldn't do. You don't have to be like the old you. You just need to ask God for strength, and he'll show up in that moment that you need him. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it is your first time at Downtown Harbor Church, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. This week, I want to ask you an extremely awkward and uncomfortable question. What's your sin? What's your sin? And I don't mean in some ambiguous, nebulous, sinful life. What's your sin? You know the one I'm talking about. The one that's tearing you apart. The one that might be impacting your life, 
your family. Your, maybe for you it's not so obvious. We know that there's no hierarchy of sin. So what is happening in your life right now that you know God doesn't want you involved with? An activity, a behavior, a thought pattern that you need to lay before the Lord, that you need to put before his feet. What's your sin? Now, leave that sin behind. No need to complicate this. Jesus didn't. Just look at what he said. Don't sin. Sin not. Go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Not because God's going to get you. It's because sin kills things. But you know that. So this week as you're meditating on this latest command, remember, Jesus didn't come to just forgive your sins. He came to free you from them. To release you from the old you. To allow you to become a new creation, a child of God that is no longer slave to sin. You don't have to live like that anymore. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could be here today. I want to thank you for this command because it is just absolutely challenging. Lord, yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, our bodies are fallen, Lord, but you have redeemed us. By sending your son Jesus to die on the cross, you not only took the punishment of our sins, Lord, but you have given us the power to walk away from them forever. And I don't know what anybody's dealing with right now, but I know if they're humans, they're dealing with sin. And I pray that today, in a special way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would prick their conscience. That you would say to them, it's time. It's time. You need to leave this behind. You struggle with this long enough. It's killing you. It's killing your family. This is not what I had in mind for your life. Leave it behind, Lord. Give us the strength, Lord, to submit our lives to the Holy Spirit. Allow Him to take control. Because you want more for us. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness. And we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name.